Liz Larson leads me down a narrow hallway to the bedroom where she spends most of her time. She warns me, it's a mess. So bad. So bad. You know, this is not as bad as I was expecting, to be super honest. It's mostly closed. It looks like a typical 15-year-old's room. There are sci-fi and superhero posters on the walls and heaps of laundry on the floor. You know, I'm not sure which is dirty and which is clean. That's her mom, Stacy Larson, teasing about the sorry state of affairs in here. Some parents would be angry about this. They might even ground their kid. But this mother-daughter pair had to work out a new and more lenient arrangement when a cry for help turned the family dynamic on its head earlier this year. Unfortunately, we, we got a wake-up call, a very direct wake-up call. If we hadn't had the wake-up call, I don't think we would have really paid as much attention. Liz is an introvert, but she has an edgy exterior. She has this shock of turquoise blue hair that covers her face and a fascination with cult documentaries. At the start of the last school year, she slipped into a funk. She was sleeping a lot, and she didn't want to eat or talk to friends. Sounds like normal kid stuff, right? Maybe hormones or back-to-school blues. At least that's what Stacy figured. I just literally thought she was lazy, didn't want to do anything, and was going to get over it, you know. And so we threw a drug at her and thought, okay, that's going to make everything better and she's going to be fine, and, and, and didn't really take it seriously enough. And then one day in January, Liz stumbled out of her bedroom, and the severity of the situation became very clear. She couldn't talk. She was just, just shaking. And um, I'm like, she says, I did something bad, and I'm like, Okay, and I'm thinking, you know, she spent $200 or this is all the things that you think of, right? And so to, for her to say that she took the pills was like not even on my radar. Liz had swallowed half a bottle of Zoloft in an attempt to end her life. Fortunately, she realized her mistake fast. She called poison control and then told her mom what happened. Within hours, Liz was checking into a facility for 24-7 monitoring. Here's how she remembers it. Things just got so bad that I just like, it's like, I just like shattered and I was like, no. And I had like a mental breakdown and like at you. (laughs) And so that was like my little breaking point. It had been boiling for like a few months and then just like kind of exploded. And I remember always feeling like it was like you were trapped like in the school cycle because you have to go to school for anything. Then I didn't see other solutions, so instead I was just like, you know what, f*** it. And then I did that. And that sucked. Liz was so overwhelmed she tried to kill herself. It's something a lot of teens talk about. And in a rural place, the data suggests they're more likely to go through with it. A major national study shows that youth suicide rates are twice as high in rural areas than in cities due to stigma and a lack of services. So how do Amador County teens who don't fit in survive in these small towns, where nothing's in biking distance and weekend fun is often limited to church barbecues or Boy Scout fundraisers? Some kids distract themselves with the hope of leaving. But many families live below the poverty line and struggle with substance addiction or domestic abuse, making options after high school seem dim. There's no community college. And since the lumber mills closed in the 90s, most people work at the prison or the casino. 
So kids don't tell their parents about bullying or their sexuality or their fears about grades. It's about shame. They don't want to disappoint anyone. After her attempt, Liz was afraid to go back to school. She didn't want to spiral again. She sent a letter to her teachers and counselors. Do you want to read it? Do you want me to read it? Yeah. You can read it. I don't want to read it. Okay, I'll read it. <laughs> All right. Dear Peoples. Stacy begins with confidence. She's passionate about her daughter's words. But Liz is curled up on the couch, hiding her face behind her hands. I am depressed. That is hard to accept. I want to be a happy girl. I do not do homework because many nights I don't know honestly if I'll make it to the next week or the next day. She goes on to describe the cycle of depression and anxiety that Liz experiences every day. Depression that makes her not care about school, followed by anxiety that she'll fall behind. Stacy says Liz doesn't want pity from her teachers or classmates, just understanding. I am not weak. I am not vulnerable. I am not crazy. I am ill. I am sharing these personal feelings because I need my voice to be heard. That this is not just a little sadness and laziness that is affecting school life. This is my reality. All of the time I feel like I'm being suffocated. It's just not every now and then. It's 24-7. I've gotten so bad that at school I completely shut down and have no brain power. I am expected to go to school through the pain. There are days where it's bearable. There are days where it feels as if I'm standing in a crowded hallway screaming for help, yet no one comes to my aid. Stacy's read this letter before, at school, in a meeting with teachers and social workers. After they heard it, the school granted Liz some slack, like less homework and permission to leave the classroom for a breather. They hoped it would take some of the stress off. But it wasn't enough. Liz continued to sink into depression and eventually stopped going to school altogether. She's home now, and her daily routine is erratic. Walking out of my room is hard because I'll get, like, just a bunch of anxiety built up that I just don't want to, like, be seen by anyone because I'm like, they're going to judge me, like my whole family, even though I know it's usually not true. Stacy says she finally understands what's going on in Liz's head. And it's changed her parenting style a lot. My expectation is for her to live and to shower. I mean, that isn't high. I mean, I would, you know, love to see her get her nursing degree or a teaching degree or anything, but that isn't where we're at anymore. And that's changed dramatically from what it was because you have to live the hour, hour by day by day that we've learned to live with. And we didn't do that before. We've got these kids out here who are literally crying out for help and none of their parents are paying any attention. And that's why we've had suicides and the kids have suicide here. It's not just parents who have to be on the lookout for teen suicide. Scott Coleman says he sees this problem all the time at Amador High School. He's an improv coach for the drama department. He invited me to visit while they were practicing for an upcoming musical. Over the years, there have been multiple students of mine that have attempted, or, and you always feel like you should have known. We have to recognize that there's something 
toxic in the community that this, this causes us to have a higher rate than other communities. All of us need to be talking about it. We need to be understanding what is it about this community that is allowing this to happen. The kids are comfortable here. Their notebooks and messenger bags are strewn across the table. There's coffee, donuts, and pizza that they've been munching on all day. Some are barefoot, others are in Converse sneakers or dance shoes. Scott wrangles them during a break and we start to talk. I ask them to raise their hand if they know someone who's died by suicide. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, that's almost the entire room. Here is some of what they had to say. TJ talks about feeling like a misfit in a town where everyone's expected to be an all-American kid. Growing up in such a close-knit community, people get these deadlocked perceptions of who you are. Just the thought of that tends to guilt trip kids. All the adults feel like your parents, and therefore they're all guilt tripping you that way, and you just get this tremendous pressure to live up to how each and every one of them remembers you. Victoria spoke about what happened when her sister came back from a mental hospital. And like everyone was trying to be supportive, but they were saying all the wrong things. Like, oh, she's gonna be okay, but like obviously she wasn't okay. And like the way everyone treated her was so different. And it wasn't like a good difference. Like they were trying to be more mindful of her. It was like, oh, she did something wrong. My mom did something wrong by not raising her right because she had to do that. Some kids find an outlet. Danielle talks about how she staves off suicidal impulses. Amador County is, for the most part, not a supportive environment. Well, I was lucky to have found kind of a, a community in my school's drama department. But a few years ago, I, I didn't have that, and I had, you know, thoughts. So I, I went to a teacher, and then to my mother, and I got therapy, and I got better. And um, uh, things are going well now, so and I, I still have, you know, thoughts, but I know for a fact that things always get better. The kids know suicide is a problem. When a student dies, they're likely to find out on social media before parents or teachers. Nadine Magana works with young people at a nonprofit in Amador. She says adults need to get in front of a suicide death and offer resources immediately. If they don't, a school or an entire town can experience something called suicide contagion. It's a real threat, it, and it, the outcome of it depends on how it's handled. Some experts call it the copycat effect. It happens when a young person kills themselves, and then a string of kids attempt or die by suicide shortly after. That's called a suicide cluster. This happens. If you don't believe me, Google it. There are dozens of cases of small towns where one suicide triggers even more tragedy, and it's almost always teens. Whether it's a celebrity or a classmate, Magana says glorifying the recently deceased is what makes it dangerous. There's always all the good memories that come out and all the good thoughts and all the good things, and that's a normal part of the death process. But if there's other youth that are feeling in the way that that person may have been feeling they may see that as, an, as a positive end to their suffering. That's why her group helped the district set rules for the aftermath of a suicide. 
No memorials in the hallways, no posters in lockers, no t-shirts sporting dead students' faces. Most adults can see that stuff and not do anything drastic, but teens are impressionable and impulsive. They don't have the mental capacity to realize at that time as, a, as an adolescent, you know, that thought process of thinking through all your actions. The school district had to walk the fine line between publicizing and educating last year. A student wrote a play about her own struggle with depression. It included a reference to the day she tried to end her life by swallowing a bottle of pills. The school told me they had to be cautious because another student in the district had killed themselves earlier that year. They said they canceled the performance out of respect for the family and to prevent that copycat effect. But they insist it wasn't censorship. The school did put on the show at a later date. The district is training teachers on suicide prevention and recently hired more mental health staff. Magania's group gives teens numbers that they can call before they get to a breaking point. So if Liz Larson does make it back to school, maybe things will be a little less scary. Back in their kitchen, Stacy is preparing dinner for a very hungry cat. I got pate. He's very upset. Yeah. And we normally get um, fillets. I'm so not kidding. Liz is in weekly therapy now. Stacy drives more than an hour each way to get her there. And she's on medication. They don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but they do have a plan. We have a scale of 1 to 10, so when she's obviously more in a depressive state, um, I'll text more or I'll call more and, and ask her what her level is, and, and she'll say, you know, between 1 and 10, and if we get to 9.5, then we're, we're going to go back to the, check back into the psych hospital. I mean, that's just what we're going to do. It's a journey, and they're taking small steps. Liz won't go back to school, but she's attempting an independent study program, she still feels like her teachers, other parents, everyone except her mom, really, is in the dark about what she's going through. It feels like they're telling me I'm not, like, trying. But I am trying. <laughs> so I'm like... <sighs> it just makes me feel frustrated. Because it's like, I'm trying my hardest right now, and you're just demeaning me. I don't like that. And it's... I don't, to, I don't know how to explain it's not true. Local leaders want to show parents, teachers, and other adults how to tell the difference between normal teen stuff and signs for suicide. They're rolling out some mental health first aid trainings this fall. So if you know a youth who's acting out or shutting themselves in, it may be worth digging a little deeper before a wake-up call happens. If you're thinking about suicide or know someone who is, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.